once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. morning as Randy said we're starting a new series in first Corinthians that as you saw we're calling the authentic life and uh, you'll see as we get into first Corinthians you'll see why we're calling it that and you may not see it so much today I'll explain where we're going today first uh, before we get into some of the things in the weeks to come but we're calling it that because Paul the apostle Paul who wrote this letter to first century Corinthian believers in the city of Corinth He wrote this letter to help them understand what does it look like to live authentically Christian. He he addresses everything from divisions in the church to sexual immorality to uh, the roles of men and women and husbands and wives. He even addresses the abuse that they were doing um, of the table, of the Lord's table, communion as we call it. And so he gets into these uh, specifics of this is what it looks like to live authentically Christian in the world, to be separate, set apart, holy, different, those kind of things. But where I want to take us today is to set us on the right footing. And it's not what I'm doing, it's what Paul's doing. As we get into the first chapter of First Corinthians, you're going to see Paul, as we look at the second half of that chapter, really set our feet well on the foundation of the cross as we begin to understand more and more that even well before we talk about how to live, we first have to understand and believe deeply what fuels that life. If I were to stand up here, Randy or Caleb or Bob or any of us were to stand up here and give you imperatives on how you should live, this is the type of man or woman that God's called you to be, yada, 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 uh, it would simply end in do betterism and try harderism. Just, just get after it, be a better person. But without this footing, that's where we'll land. But this morning, I want to give us a footing that says, no, we we have to be foundationally grounded in the cross. And this is where Paul takes us, and it's where I want to take us, and it's wise to do so. Mentioning wise, wisdom, um, this is where Paul's going to talk about a lot in this chapter. And I just need to confess, I'm foolish. I've been foolish my whole life. In many ways. And I say that because if you were to survey the, uh, the landscape of my life, you would see uh, time after time evidence of why I'm foolish, of foolish things that I've done or said. You know, you could start as early as childhood when I thought it was most appropriate to celebrate the 4th of July with bottle rocket wars and Roman candle wars, that what was better than shooting them in the air was shooting them at each other. That's foolish. God was gracious that I didn't die doing that. Um, I think about high school, the foolishness of my junior year in high school when I tried to date two girls at once (laughs) who lived next door to each other. (laughs) I wish I were making that up. (laughs) A lot of stupidity involved in that foolishness there. As you can imagine, that did not end well. I think about college when I was serving as the student MC of our large group gathering with Campus Crusade for Christ on campus 
uh, there at the University of Alabama, and I was up front in front of about 300 students. And that night, particular night, the meeting was at 6:30. At 8:30, we were playing. The we had a team that was a part of that ministry that was playing in the na- in the uh, national championship. Yeah, I wish in the campus championship of intramural basketball, and we just so happened to be playing against the football players. Don't be impressed. Back then, the football team of Alabama was not anything like it is now, but. We were playing in this championship game against them, and I invited the whole crusade movement to come, which was great until the end of the game when we're getting ready to go into triple overtime and with no time left on the clock, one of our players is called for a foul, a shooting foul on one of their players, and he gets to go to the line to shoot free throws to win the game, and yours truly cussed out the ref in front of about 150 crusade students that I was the leader of. (laughs) One of the most foolish moments of my life. I think about the number of foolish things that I have done in my life. You may say, Jeff, well, that's when you were young and dumb. No, you could just ask my wife. I'm still am very foolish. But here's the thing. I'm misleading you a little bit. I'm not, I'm not foolish because of things I've said and because of things I've done. Those prove my foolishness, but I'm foolish because that's who I am apart from Christ. It's my nature. It's your nature. I can be so bold to bring you into this with me. We're foolish. We're foolish because that's who we are. It's natural. It's just what comes out of us. What we do and say is the overflow of our hearts. We are foolish here. We have foolish logic. We have foolish hearts. We have foolish pride. But that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is this. The more aware that we become of our foolishness, the natural response is to seek wisdom. Makes sense? But that only exasperates the problem because what we will do in our nature is look for wisdom, seek wisdom in all the wrong places. In places that in and of themselves are not bad places or bad endeavors, there is wisdom to be found at a certain level, but it'll never be the wisdom for which we most long. We'll look for it in education, If we can just get more educated, then we will be wise. To a certain degree, yes. Ultimately, no. We look for it in life experience. Certainly, it's true that someone in their 80s is wiser than someone in their 20s. But there can be great foolishness still had in your 80s. We look for it in deep philosophical arguments and debates to prove our wisdom and our intellect, only to realize that at the end of all of those is a great, huge chasm of all that we still don't know. Ultimately, where we long and seek for wisdom is not giving us the wisdom that we most long for, the wisdom that we were created for. And where we're landing today, what you'll see in this text is is what this main idea is that I'm going to steal from Paul David Tripp. I love this quote. It's really the essence of this sermon. He says this, wisdom in its purest form is not an outline. It's not a theology. It's not a book. It's not a system of logic. Wisdom is a person. You don't get wisdom by education and experimentation. You get wisdom by means of a relationship to the one who is the source of everything that's wise, good, and true. What we're going to see in this text that I'm about to read is we're going to be told explicitly in two different places that Jesus is our wisdom. Wisdom is a person. His name is Jesus. Do you know him? That's what this text is going to beg. That's the question that is begged from this 
from this scripture this morning. Do you know Jesus who is our wisdom? So let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have each Sunday to gather, to open your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would lead us now by your Holy Spirit. Would you give us insight and wisdom from you to see what you want us to see, to hear what you would have us hear? And God, would you do it all for your glory to make us more into your image? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I want you to see this morning from this text that Paul draws out for us. The first one is this. I want you to see what Paul calls the folly of the cross. The folly of the cross. Look at, the, look at verse 18 again, the first part. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The word of the cross, word meaning the message of the cross, is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. Perishing being those who are rejecting the message of the gospel. Those who have said, I will not receive by faith this offering to me of Jesus on my behalf, his sacrifice for my sins, his resurrection in my place, all that is made available to me through Jesus, I'm rejecting that. And so what Paul says is that those are the ones who are perishing, not will perish, although that's true too, but are perishing. Scripture makes it clear that for those who are not in Christ, faith in him, are dead, we are dead spiritually. And apart from God himself reaching into our lives, illuminating us by his grace to see his value and his worth and to place our faith in him, we will perish. And it's not just a physical death. More importantly, it's a spiritual death, a death which the Bible calls eternal separation from God, which he calls hell. 
But for those who are perishing from the world standards, from the world view of so many in the world, they look at the cross and they say silliness, nonsense, folly, foolishness. Many of you, your stories, that was you, that was me, that was, that was what we thought of the cross before you came to Christ. Some of you in the room may still think that way, say it is silliness, I'm not even sure why I'm here. Kind of checking this stuff out. But some of the wisest men, according men and women, according to the world standards of wisdom, have affirmed this verse over and over and over again. Some of you have heard of these men. I'll read a couple of quotes here, three, three quotes. First one's from uh, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist. He's gotten great praise from the world and the wisdom of the world. He says, it's a horrible idea that God, this paragon of wisdom and knowledge, power, could think of a better way, couldn't think of a better way to forgive us our sins than to come down to earth in his alter ego as his son and have himself hideously tortured and executed so that he could forgive himself. Many of you have heard of Christopher Hitchens. He says this, a virgin can conceive, a dead body can walk. Your leprosy can be cured. The blind can see nonsense, folly, foolishness. It's not moral to lie to children. It's not moral to lie to ignorant, uneducated people and tell them them that if they only would believe nonsense, they can be saved. It's immoral. Did you catch his wisdom? It's not moral to tell ignorant, uneducated people. If only we could be more educated. If only we could be smarter. Then we would see and understand and comprehend the foolishness, the folly of the cross. So, Christian, if only we weren't so ignorant and gullible, intellectually stunned. That's what the wisdom of the world says is our problem. Lawrence Krauss, a well-known physicist, did a speech at the Atheist Alliance International Convention in 2009, he said this, you couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution, weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars, and the only way they could get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. This is the wisdom of the world. This is the wisdom that says if you could just think for yourself, you would see the folly of the cross. I mean, how could you be so foolish to think that some uh, uh, carpenter from Nazareth 2,000 years ago who walked around homeless and did a few things here and there was the God of the universe in the flesh who died a common criminal on the cross and then rose from the dead. What, how could you believe that? Try to put it into perspective for you in, in a way that may sound silly, but at least it makes sense for me and how I think. Many years ago, uh, several years ago, I was with one of my best friends that I grew up with. We were back in my hometown, uh, Russellville in, in North Alabama, and um, we were eating at my favorite place to eat growing up, the Speedy Pig. Barbecue joint. I don't know why you would ever be going through Russellville, but if you are, you got to eat it, Speedy Pig. So 
Anthony and his wife Ellen and my wife Rachel and I were catching up. We hadn't seen each other in a while. And Anthony had clearly uh, uh, prepared in advance to do what he was going to do to me. He pulls out of his pocket. Who walks around with this in your pocket? But he pulls out of his pocket a bottle of hot sauce. And he has the label covered by his hand. And he says, Jeff, I just got back from the Smoky Mountains. And I came across the best hot sauce I've ever tasted. You've got to have some of this. And me, being intellectually stunted and gullible, said, okay. He says, pull out your roll. Take your roll there. So I take my little yeast roll. And he, on the corner of the roll, he takes this bottle. And he very carefully just lets one little drop hit on the edge of the bread. And I keep holding it there. You're going to do more? That's all you're going to give me? He says, that's all, that's all you'll need. <laughs> I said, okay. So I take a bite of this roll with this tiny dot on the edge. And I'm telling you people, 10, maybe 15 seconds, my lips were falling off my face. <laughs> I mean, I am just <laughs> like just throwing anything liquid on my mouth. I'm asking for milk from the waiter and and I'm just dying. And he's laughing. And I'm like, okay, that was a good one. Actually, it sounded more like, (laughs) it's the hottest thing. There's no way that this hot sauce came from anything organic in this world. It was like gasoline and acid mixed together. I mean, there's, there's no way it was natural. But here's the thing, maybe this will make sense to you. As long as I was holding that roll from a distance and looking at that tiny dot, it was so silly that that would have any power. It was just kind of like, are you really? That's all you're going to put on there? You think that's going to do something? Okay. But when I tasted it, When I ingested, so to speak, and it didn't even have to be ingested. I mean, it was just get it in my mouth. Suddenly, I was made aware of the power of what was in that bottle. And I was like, this is is mind-blowing what I have just experienced here, that something that seemingly insignificant would have that kind of power. Look at the rest of the verse here. Look at the rest of verse 18, the language that Paul uses. He says, for the word of, crawl, of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the dynamite. The Greek word is dunamis, which is the word in which we get dynamite. It is the power of God. As long as the world looks at the cross from a distance and sees this little dot from 2,000 years ago, they're going to look at that and they're going to say, that's silliness, that's nonsense, that's all you got. But those of us who are in Christ, we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good and we have ingested, so to speak, Christ. And we go, no, 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 you don't understand. There is power here that the world has no wisdom for. And it's life altering and it's changing in ways that would absolutely blow your mind. But the wisdom of the world says that's silliness. That's foolishness. That's folly. What is the cross to you? Is it folly to you? Or is it the power of God unto salvation? Second thing that Paul draws out for us is he kind of teaches us here about the path of wisdom. 
A couple things that he says in verse 20, a couple questions that he gives us in verse 20 that for us, uh, we probably miss pretty easily, 21st century Americans. But in first century Corinth, they would have picked up up on what he was doing here right away. He says this, he says, where's the one who is wise? And then he asked two questions. He says, where is the scribe and where is the debater of this age? Again, they would have known exactly who he's referring to. Where is the scribe is referring to the Jewish learned scribe, the learned class of Jewish people to where these are the ones who were the ultra religious. These are the ones who uh, knew the scriptures more than anybody else. And so we might call this path the Jewish path that says my religious wisdom is supreme. See, what the Jews wanted is they wanted irrefutable proof that the Messiah had come. Now, what's ironic about that is that they had gotten irrefutable proof, but they just didn't want to see it. It was right underneath their noses the entire time. But here, this is what you can't miss. They were expecting the Messiah based on their religious wisdom, not on the wisdom of God. See, their religious wisdom and the ways that they had misinterpreted the Old Testament was to say that when the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, when the Rescuer comes, when the Christ comes, he will come in power. So far, so good, right? But the implications were wrong. They said he will come in power militarily, politically, and he will overthrow the Romans. What the Jews had misunderstood in their wisdom was that when the Messiah would come, that what what we needed, what they needed, what we all need way more than a deliverance out there is a deliverance in here. Not from the Romans, but from our own sin. And so when Jesus started walking around Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and doing what he did and then to end up on a cross, there's no power in that. See, a Messiah dead on the cross is a contradiction in terms for the religious wise of Judaism. They say, he's got to be powerful in my standards, according to my wisdom. Second thing that we see here is we see the Greek path. You have the Jewish path, and then you have the Greek path. He asks, where's the debater of this age? This, is, this was speaking of those, the, the, the philosophers in Greek, those who would gather in the Areopagus and, and show out for one another who was more intelligent, who was more wise, who was more philosophical, who had the better insight. This, is, this was the first century version of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Dr. Krauss. This is the men that I quoted earlier that are so proud of their wisdom and human logic. The Greek path is intellectual reason, and it says that my intellectual and philosophical wisdom is supreme. Look at verse 22. He says, for the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. See, the Jews wanted signs, and they got them. They just didn't see them. John 6 is a great example of this. John chapter 6 is the story of where Jesus feeds the 5,000. He takes five loaves of bread and two fish. And many scholars say that this was the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. I'm not real sure how you measure miracles. Seem to all be miracles to me, but scholars say this is probably the biggest. And they say that because you think about the fact that it wasn't just 5,000. That's how many men were there. 
But once you estimate how many children and women were there, then you're looking at probably more like 20,000 people. So he's just multiplied these five loaves of bread and two fish in front of all these people. And they even had leftovers. And the Jewish scribes were there. And right after this happens, in John chapter 6, verse 30, they ask Jesus a question. The Jewish scribes ask Jesus a question. And they say this. They say, is there a sign that you can give us that we may believe in you? If I were Jesus, clearly I'm not, I would have been like, what? Were you there? Did, did you? I got nothing for you. They demanded irrefutable proof and signs, and God gave it to them, but not in the way that their wisdom wanted. And the Greeks said, look, we're just too smart for this Jesus thing. So there's a path, there's the, the path of the Jews, irrefutable proof. There's the path of the, of the Greeks, my intellect and my wisdom. But there's a third path. It's called the foolish path, and it's Christ crucified. Paul says this, verse 22, I'll read it again. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek, seek wisdom Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. The Greek word there is the word that we get scandalous from. This is a scandal to Jews, so much so that they stumble over Jesus rather than believing in him. It's a stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, here's the word again, the power of God, and here's the big picture, main idea of what Paul's wanting to get, uh, have us understand. He's the power of God, and he's the wisdom of God. And he puts an end to what we think is wisdom. Wisdom of God is supreme, and the wisdom of God is seen in a Messiah hanging on a cross. Which path are you staking your life on? You more like the Jewish path? You more like the Greek path? Or are you the foolish path according to the world's standards? That what we preach and what we hang our hat on, our lives on, where we sink our feet deep, deep into the rock of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The third thing that Paul wants us to see this morning is the aim of boasting. The aim of boasting. He says this. Look at verse 26. I'm going to read 26 through 31 again. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29 is your big hinge verse. Why? Why would he do all this? Here's why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's natural for us to boast. I watch it with my kids all the time. It's just their nature to boast. To brag about. They want dad and mom to know what they've done well at. And so the natural inclination of the heart is to say, look how great I am. 
And what I've done, and there's that delicate balance as parents where you want to affirm you have done a good job, but let's not brag about it. But boasting is actually something that can be a really good thing if centered on the right person. Like when, when, God, when God grabbed this dead, cold heart of mine, one of the things that he began to do in me and in you, if you know Christ, is he began to shift the proclamation of our life from look what I've done to look what he's done. The very posture of who we are, the very nature of what we proclaim now is centered on him. And if I'm going to boast... I'm going to boast in Jesus. That's what he says in verse 31. He says, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's he's kind of reciting in a more concise way, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which says this. I love this verse. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So we're right to say, kids, let's not boast. Don't brag about yourself. Let somebody else encourage you and speak into your life. But there's a part of boasting that was given to us by God that is natural and good when centered on him. Why do we boast in Jesus? We boast in Jesus because he poured out his blood so that we may be reconciled to God. Why do we boast in Jesus? We boast in Jesus because he poured out his blood on us on a cross, the very death, both physically and spiritually, that we should have died, but rather he took our place. Why do we boast in Jesus? We boast in Jesus not just because he hung on a cross and stayed dead, but we boast in Jesus because the very penalty of sin, death itself, he destroyed once and for all. And through faith in him, his resurrection is our resurrection. Why do we boast in Jesus? We boast in Jesus that he didn't just pour out his blood on us and then say you're forgiven and merely tolerated. But he said, I'm pouring out my blood on you to reconcile you, not just to tolerate you, but to say to you, you are now a child of the king, a son and daughter of God most high, and that everything that is mine is now yours. Why do we boast in Jesus? We boast in Jesus because in the courtroom of God, where we stand guilty before God because of our sin, he stamps over our heart, not guilty, not even innocent, but righteous. He declares us to be fully and completely perfect in the presence of God because of Jesus. Why do we boast in Jesus? We boast in Jesus not only because he's justified us and declared us righteous, but because he is more committed to our sanctification than we will ever be. Philippians 1.6, he is faithful to bring to completion that which he has started. He is devoted and committed to you if you are in Christ. Every millisecond of your life, every breath that we take is his faithfulness to us to make us inch by inch, step by step, more like Jesus, more like him. Why do we boast in Jesus? We boast in Jesus not only because he's justified us, not only because he's committed to our sanctification, but because on that day, When we stand in the presence of God, we will be standing in the presence of God, not as one condemned, but one who is fully resurrected in the new body, just like Jesus. And we will stand there 
brothers and sisters, not because of anything that we've done, not because of any wisdom that we had, not because of any decisions that we made, we will stand in the presence of God and he will see us and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And it will be based entirely and completely upon the work of Jesus and the wisdom of God. That is why we boast in Jesus. And when the cross is central, when the cross of Jesus, his work and his wisdom on our behalf, when it is central, then we can begin to live an authentic life. Religion says get your stuff together and maybe God will accept you. The gospel says Jesus did it for you. You are free. Go and live by my power. Let me read to you a story to close us here. The story of Rosaria Butterfield. Many of you have heard her story. She's a self, she was a self-described antagonistic atheist who had set out to disprove Christianity, but even more specifically, prove the foolishness of Christianity. She says this, she says, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. After my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. One of her writings was published in the local newspaper. And in response to what she had written about Christianity in that, uh, in that newspaper, she got all kinds of mail, lots of hate mail, lots of love mail. She got one piece in particular that came in, and it was different from the others. It was kind, it was compassionate, and it was ultimately an invitation it's from a local pastor who just simply said things along the lines of, I appreciate your perspective. I can tell that you've thought about this a lot. And then he invited her to his home. I'd love for you to come over. I'd love to get to know you and talk with you about why I believe what I believe. It was written in such a way that something about the way that it was written tugged at her heart, but she read it and threw it in the trash. She talks about how she couldn't get the letter out of her mind. And so sometime later, she digs through the trash and she pulls it out and she reads it. And eventually she writes back to this local pastor and she accepts his invitation. She talks about how she mainly wanted to meet with him and his wife so that she could get more research for her project in proving the foolishness of Christianity. As their relationship developed, she says this. She said, I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting. My friend, concerned for me, approached me in the kitchen and she put her hand over mine and said, this Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria. With tremors, I responded, what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and risen. She says, I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask 
for this. Over the next two years, she continued to wrestle and read and continue to grow in this relationship with the pastor and his wife. And then she says this, Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war, war of world views, Ken was there, that's the pastor, and Floyd was there, that's his wife. The church that had been praying for me for years was there, and Jesus triumphed. I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I had loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of my covenant family. And then she says this, the centrality of the cross, of the bloodshed of Christ, she says this, I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. The folly of the cross, the folly of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways in which it instructs us and leads us, but even way more important than that, we thank you that it illuminates us, opens our eyes, the eyes of our heart to see you. Lord, thank you that you are the the wise one, the high and lifted up God who puts to shame the foolishness of this world. And Father, we pray and we admit to you that we can be such fools. We thank you for your grace that allows us to see the wisdom of God in Jesus. Thank you that wisdom is a person. Thank you that his name is Jesus. Thank you for your love for us through him. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.